morning, everyone. Seems kind of um, inappropriate for me to to start without acknowledging uh, what happened on Friday. Um, one of the reasons that we love our country so much, um, and in reality, one of the reasons uh, so many of you guys in this room um, uprooted your lives and shifted countries to come and live here is that we're regarded as this lovely, safe, South Pacific nation. Um, and some of you might not even know, that's, that's what Pacific means. If you look up Pacific in the dictionary, it means uh, gentle, peaceful in nature and intent. Um, and so it's just amazing that we would have um, such incredible violence uh, right in our sleepy little South Island. Um, and most of us, I think if we're born not even into just a, a Christian home, but the average Kiwi moral home, uh, violence is just not part of the movie of your life, apart from um, a few fisticuffs in the sandpit at primary school or some biffo out on the rugby field. It, it's just not us. And yet the reality is we know that it is a part of history, um, and right around the world there are a lot of people who, who live in fear of that type of thing happening. And so what's interesting is that uh, by coincidence this morning we're going to be looking at a passage written by King David uh, for whom fear was a huge part of his life. Uh, this was a guy who literally ran for his life for most of his, most of his days. And this morning what we're doing is we continue on in our uh, summit journey series, our discipleship series. We're going to be looking at the question, we are looking at the question as we go on, how am I planning to intentionally become more like Jesus this year? And this morning that the part of that equation that we want to look at is heartfelt prayer and worship. And so we're going to be looking at one of David's prayers as a guy who who faced fear and who lived in the trenches of life because his prayers are the genuine ones that we want. If you're like me, you don't want prayers that are just uh, little mumbled, memorized sayings that you say so you can have your dinner. You don't want ivory tower uh, religious ritual. You want stuff that cuts it in the trenches of life, that, that really can face the pressure of life. And that's exactly the type of prayers that David gives us. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 57 today, and so I'd love it if you've got a Bible, turn it on or open it up, um, and we'll read together from, uh, from verse 1 in Psalm 57. Interesting thing to really understand Psalm 57 is to understand the context that it's written in. And to get that context... Most of you, I think, in your Bibles will have a, underneath Psalm 57, you're going to have a heading. And just in case you don't have the NIV, this is what it says. It says, for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy, and that's likely uh, some musical instructions for when the psalm was used as part of the temple worship. Then it says, of David... The, the author, the source, a mitcam. Well, we don't know what mitcam means. It's likely a literary or musical term. But then it says this. It says, When he, David, had fled from Saul into the cave. And that gives us an idea 
of the setting, the context that this psalm was written in. What, what caused David to write out the prayer, to say the prayer that we're going to read about today? And so just a bit of history and what he's talking about when he talks about the cave. So when uh, David first came onto the scene, he was the second king of Israel. Before him, there was a guy called Saul. And David fought in Saul's army, and he was hugely successful. But as a result of that, Saul grew jealous of David. And Saul had his fair share of apparently mental and spiritual issues, and he really suffered from that to the point where this jealousy towards David grew and festered to the point where he wanted David killed. And so much of Saul's kingship, he's chasing David to kill him. And we read... Uh, after Saul starts chasing David, we read in 1 Samuel 22, uh, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with David. Try and picture the scene. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he'd been at war with them, he was told, hey, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats, these caves where David is hiding. Try and imagine this in your head. A madman king is pursuing you to take your life. He is obsessed with you. You have now become the leader of 400, what, was, what were the words? Discontented, indebted, distressed men. No show of hands, ladies, but I'm sure it's not that easy to live with one discontented man. Look around the room for some idea of context here. I'm guessing there's probably 150 people in this room. Multiply this room by two and a half. How many of you have 400 employees? No one. I would, it would be a huge number. If you did, how many of you would like them living with you as the king pursues you to take... The, David was probably in his mid-twenties when he is under this level of pressure, when he is facing this level of fear. Try and imagine what it's like to try and sleep. Every little noise. Is that the sound of an ambush? Imagine the thousand thoughts... The question's crashing around in his head. How, what are we going to eat? Where are we going to hide if we're found? Where are we going to escape to? Who can I trust when I run to one of these local kings? So much pressure. And yet when we read David's prayer, we find him finding so much refuge in God. If you'd read with me, please, this heartfelt, dependent prayer that David gives us in Psalm 57. He starts off in verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me or who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. 
So this is how David's writing. This is his, his dependent prayer. Look at how he describes this. And he's not just being overly sensational. When he talks about disaster, being men who are pursuing him, he describes them as being in the midst of lions. And yet he describes the refuge that he finds in God as being like taking shadow, by being in the refuge in the shadow of your wings. I just love this because when Jesus came, when God turned up on earth, he used the same phrase. When he's looking out over Israel, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Think about that beautiful picture. Think about what a chick is like. I mean, they are just so helpless, so utterly dependent. They can't flee, let alone fly. And, and the mother takes them under her wings, this beautiful, warm, sheltered refuge spot where they can't even see the danger, let alone be exposed to it. And that's how David describes finding, feeling like in the refuge of God's wings with all of this incredible pressure and fear that he's facing. And my question is, how does he find that? How does prayer do that for him? Is it that every time David prays, God's like some ATM machine, David prays, enemies killed. David prays, pain goes away. And we know it's clearly, clearly not like that because David has these prayers ongoing through his kingship and through his life. Is it that in some new agey sort of a way, David prays and the elements of the universe like the promise, you know, they kind of, they, they just realign and everything is cozy. And again, we know that's not what happens at all either. But what we do see when David prays, so many times, even when his prayers are predominantly prayers of lament and questions and confusion and even anger, is that by the end of his prayer, it's not that the world has realigned to suit David. It's that so often his thinking is realigned when he remembers, who do I belong to? Who is my refuge? Who am I secure in? I love the way Paul Miller puts this. A gentleman wrote a book called The Praying Life. And he says, learning to pray doesn't offer you a less busy life. It offers you a less busy heart. The universe doesn't get realigned to us, but so often our thinking as we pray, whether we are answered or not, whether we are answered as we want or not, but our thinking is realigned and our hearts become less busy. The point though as well is not that David, it's not that prayer itself does this, it's that God does this. David doesn't run to prayer, he runs to God. He doesn't find his refuge in prayer, he finds his refuge in God. And when we think about dependent prayer, when David prays his dependent prayer, it's not prayer that he's depending on. It's God that David is depending on. And that's why he has this incredible faith and he finds this incredible refuge that he can describe as being like tucked under a mother hen's wings. If you're like me, that raises some questions and, and you may find that quite hard to relate to. Because I find that there are, it's almost like there's two groups of people or, or two ends of the spectrum in the world of faith. There are people 
uh, next to whom my faith just seems like a toy world giveaway. These people just have such robust, relentless faith who, who, who just have waves crashing through their fields and they are just completely at home in God. And I am often not like that. My faith just seems so itty-bitty. I read this week about an amazing young lady, uh, a lady called Essie Hillison, who was a, a young Jewish girl, Dutch-Jewish girl, who was in, uh, 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 taken captive in the Second World War and sent off to one of the Nazi death camps. And she interestingly kept a journal recording her prayers as she went through. And some of them are just spectacular. This is one of her prayers. She says, Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, the concentration camp, my feet planted on your earth, God, my eyes raised towards your heaven, tears sometimes run down my face, tears of deep emotion and gratitude. And I want to be right in the thick of what people call horror and still be able to say life is beautiful. For once you've begun a walk with God, you need only keep on walking with God and life becomes one long stroll, a marvellous feeling. This is out of Philip Yancey's book, Prayer, and his point, the question he first asks is, who can write like that in this situation? He's, he's saying, imagine living there, a caged animal, smelling, tasting the ashes as your countrymen and women are burned, like a burnt offering from the race chosen by Hitler as he tries to wipe out the race of people chosen by God. How, how do you write something like this in that situation? And Philip Yancey's point is, is to say that even in the worst situation, that prayer can still give you access to the most amazing peace. And when I first read this, I thought, Man, that's incredible, and I'm so challenged, I'm so inspired, I'm like, get me some of that faith. But interestingly, as I did some more research about Etty Hillison, what, what I found is that she has amazing faith, but her view of God is quite different to mine. Another one of her prayers... She, says this, she's praying to God, she says, Alas, there doesn't seem to be much you yourself can do about our circumstances, about our lives. Neither do I hold you responsible. You cannot help us. But we must help you and defend your dwelling place inside us to the last. And as I'm reading that, as inspired as I am by this woman's incredible faith, I'm reading the way that she describes God and I'm, I'm thinking that's not the God that I read about in the Bible who spoke and brought galaxies into being. The God who, who lifts up and deposes kings, who, who chooses out and saves a nation at a time. And she's saying, you, you can't... There doesn't seem to be much you yourself can do. You, you can't help us. And my concern is that sometimes people who have such incredible faith, unwavering, unquestioning, resolute faith, if their faith is in the wrong thing, then to have so much natural faith could actually be dangerous. What, what would be the case if before she heard about the God of the Bible, Etty Hellison had been introduced to Buddhism? And that incredible natural faith clung to Buddhism or to atheism. 
I don't think almost a blind faith like that is as inspiring and incredible and encouraging as it is when it's in the right object of faith. I don't think that's necessarily what the Bible calls us to have. And so if you're like me, you don't have that incredible faith. You're down on the skinny white accountant end of the spectrum with your timid little faith. It's okay because there are so many examples in the Bible where God says, here's the evidence. Exercise that little bit of faith that you've got and I want to show you that it's worthwhile doing that. Thomas the Doubter, probably the most famous example of this. One of Jesus' disciples, the other disciples have seen Jesus risen from the dead. Thomas wasn't there and he says, no, I don't believe it. It's too out there. I need to see the evidence. I need to see the nail marks in his hands and, and where the, sword, the, the spear went into his side. And does Jesus turn up and say, you wimp of little faith? He turns up and he says, hey Thomas, here you go. Put, put your hand here, come and feel it. It's okay. Because if we need evidence, he's happy to give that to us because that's what a loving God does. And what I love so much about David is that sometimes I think this is a man with just incredible natural faith who just, who just trusts God no matter what. He turns up, Goliath is there, the whole Israelite army is, is trembling at this giant on the other side. They're saying there's no way we can, we can beat this guy. Little David turns up, sees what's going on, prays to God, grabs a couple of stones, says, no, there's no way I can miss that big sucker. And he's in there. He has such incredible faith. And sometimes I think, is David on the almost blind faith end of the spectrum? But I don't think he is, because the more and more of David's prayers we read, we just see that raw honesty. When he's knackered, he tells God. When he's confused, he tells God. When he is angry with God, he lets him know. He is transparent and honest. The reason he finds so much refuge, so much comfort, so much security is not that David has this natural, incredible amount of faith. It's that David has this amazing view of God, this incredibly high view of the true God who he knows that he belongs to. And so if you're like me, and I think often the average Kiwi is, we, we tend to be fairly reserved, we are, generally speaking, less passionate than some other races across the globe. If you don't feel like you have oodles of faith, that's not the end of the world. What is even more important than your faith that causes you to dependently pray is what are you putting your faith in? And if you expand in your mind and understand more and more the reality of what God's like, you will easily be more dependent in your prayer and feel more secure like David did. And I can... Understand, it's not always easy. How do we take in God? I love the way Philip Yancey describes this. He says, I am overwhelmed by the vastness of God, the imbalance of any creature's relationship to such a being. Since it's, he quotes St. Augustine here, since it's God we are speaking of, you do not understand it. If you could understand it, it would not be God, said St. Augustine. We who barely comprehend ourselves are approaching a God we cannot possibly comprehend. And so it almost, as exciting and as good for us as it is, it seems almost like there's a, a certain futility about it. 
And so my question is, how do we do this? Because I, want, I, I don't want to pray to a stunted God. I want to pray to the real God. I want to pray to the God who speaks and makes supernovas and galaxies and who in, invented light and light speed and, and who's the true God who hears a, a billion prayers at a time and who can cure disease and raise the dead and, and who is sovereign over all mankind. That's the God I want to know. How do I get that in my head in my busy life? And so just some practical things, these are helpful to me, just sharing them with you. First of all, listen to last week's excellent message by Brad. Firstly, we have to get familiar with the Bible. If the Bible is God's book that talks about him, his love letter to us, describing what he's like and how he deals with us through history, no-brainer. We need to be familiar with it. A hundred tools around to help you do that, start by listening to last week's excellent message. Secondly, listen or read uh, books and messages by men and women who just have a great view of God. And some people's views of God are just bigger than others. And I, there, are so, there are some teachers that I just love because their view of God is off the charts. Just so like him. Their view of Christ is so high. Some of them, uh, A.W. Tozer. Old school, but just fantastic. John Piper, J.I. Packer, Jerry Bridges, Tim uh, Keller today. Some of these guys, I just love them. And you can find them on, on uh, Right Now Media, the church website that our church has access to. Talk to Mark, me afterwards. We can get you plugged into that. But listen and, and read from, from men and women with incredible views of God. Expand God in your head. Hang out with people who think like that, who love to talk about God because he's so awesome and so beautiful. Surround yourself with people who think like that and you will become like that too. And if you're like me, I'm, I'm influenced by nature. I just love it. And so I, I love to surround myself with nature. I turn up and I, I log into my computer and that's the picture I see at the moment every morning. And, and not that I'm idolizing creation, but it's just something like that. I recognize that's not the creator. That's just a snippet of his creation. But stuff like this just says to me, Steve, you belong to an incredible being, a being that you can't possibly take in, a being I don't want to be able to possibly take in because that would be limiting him. And he is so awesome. And what I find so encouraging is that I think that's why David could pray such incredible, heartfelt, dependent prayers. Not because he was just uniquely gifted with faith that none of us could ever have, but because he had just got into his head how incredible God is. The object of his faith, the, the destination of his prayers. And that's not the only important identity in this equation. For those of you taking notes and, and following through with the journal in the series, the key identity for today is that I am a child of God. I belong to, I'm created by this incredible being who, who I can't even hope to take in, try as I might, and, and that I should try and take in. I am not just a subject in his kingdom. I am not just a servant in, in his kingdom. I am a child of his. And so when I approach him, I am not just bowing and scraping up to his judge's bench or up to his throne. I just love the way Brad described this a few weeks ago. Just visually, he said, you're not approaching 
a God who's just like this. He said, you're approaching a God who is like this. You know, the God who waits for you at the gate when you're coming home from school and who just can't wait to hear about your day and what's going on in your heart and in your life because you're his child. That's the key identity for today. This incredible being, a being off the charts, is not just your king, your judge. He's your father. The New Testament just almost tries like it can't emphasize that enough. And so if that's the key identity, then the key verb for today, this almighty God that we belong to, the key verb is, is to respond. What an incredible opportunity, an incredible privilege that he holds out to us. Why would we not exercise this? It's not like a telephone call to some grunt, grouchy old Scottish uncle who doesn't want to take the phone call because he's got to pay for it. It's like running to the perfect parent who can't wait to hear from you. That's the invitation of prayer. That's why David is just so quick to offer up these heartfelt, dependent prayers. As we're looking in this first part of the message about dependent prayer, before we go on to, to wholehearted worship, I just want to stop and just for a minute, just give us an opportunity to respond, to practice what I'm trying to preach, and just to, to pray, just silently in your own seats, because... In a room this size, there are going to be a whole lot of you who are juggling a whole heap of balls. And you've got too many balls in the air. And some of those balls that you're trying to juggle are turning into knives and chainsaws. And it's just draining you. And you are losing sleep and you are, and you are, you are, you are in tears and it's just too much. You're feeling some of the pressure that David felt, something similar in his situation. And if that's not you, if, if your life at the moment is just plain sailing down a calm coastline, can I just gently remind all of us that that's not the world we live in. We live in a particularly messy world. And this country is more aware of that today than we were on Thursday. More aware than perhaps we've ever been in our history. And so I just want to invite us, just give us the opportunity, can we just stop just for one minute and whatever is burdening your heart and if you don't have any personal burdens, pray for Christchurch, for those people, pray for other stuff that God puts on your heart. Let's just be silent and please just for a minute, just pray right where you are, just, just silently. So, if the first part then of, of David's 
of the psalm is, is dependent prayer in those verses that we read. When we go on from there, what we have is what I'd like to call wholehearted worship. Because even in the midst of that incredible pressure David's facing, he, he gives out this prayer. But listen to how he finishes Psalm 57. So reading from verse 5, outlining the disaster he's facing. He says in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet, these pursuers of mine. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness reaching to the skies. Be exalted, David says, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And what we have there is, is not just polished words from David in his best Sunday school suit. This is a guy in a cave. And this is a guy who, who sings, prays, stuff like this continually throughout his life. And so what we're seeing here is not just a kind of a prayer to look good. This is the tip of an iceberg of a life that, that looks like this. And that's what real worship is. Real worship is a whole of life response to, what, to who God is, to what he's like, to what he's done whole of life response and this is this is beautiful but this is just the tip of the iceberg when we turn up in church and we pray and and sometimes you just feel plugged into God and your heart is in the zone and you just you know how loved you are and you just want to love God back and that is an awesome thing but that is just part of worship and even the the, the hymn book that the worship manual, if you like, of the Israelite people, the Psalms themselves, have so many different ways to, to describe worship. Some of them, it says, sing a new song. But it also says, shout to the Lord, dance before him, all you Kiwi men. Uh, clap your hands, make a loud noise, run to him, bow down before him, tell of his might, stand in awe, still your heart, walk in his ways, seek his face, tell the nations. It is not just singing on a Sunday morning. That is worship. It is a whole of life response to all that God is and what he's like and what he does. And so that just widens it so much more. And if you don't have the, the voice of an angel or the, 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 you know, the, the drumbeat or whatever, your life is part of your worship to God. So you, you leave here and how do you drive home? How do you treat the lady in the checkout? And, and pack and save. When you turn up at work tomorrow, how do you, how do you treat your, your boss or your employees? How do you treat your computer when it doesn't behave? Your, your character, your speech, your priorities. What do you do with your money? What do you do with your time? When we follow the trail of these things, we find what you worship. Because worship is really just saying... What has the number one place in your life? What is supreme? What is worthy of everything you have? Best way to understand worship is the old English word 
worth-ship. What is supreme? What is worth more to you than anything else? And a couple of questions that I, I find really challenging that help me think about this is what would I or wouldn't I give up for God? What would I give up God for? Because if there's anything, then he's not number one in my life. And if there's other things that crowd him out, then he doesn't have first place. All these other things, other things in life need to be done. You've got to, you've got to have a career. You've got to put food on the table. You've got to look after your health. You've got to spend time living. It's not the issue that those things exist. It becomes an issue when those things get first place in your life. When there's anything that is first before God. Because he is worth more than anything else. He has to be supreme. That's what worship, worship is about. And when we think about it like that, that uncovers for us as well the risk of today. The key challenge is idolatry. Is there something in my life that has first place before God, that crowds him out, that, I, that if I follow the trail of my time and my passion and my energy and my plans and my devotion, it doesn't really end up coming to God. It comes to something else or something else, someone else. That's a key challenge and risk for us. And it probably means that the God that we have in our minds doesn't deserve to be first place. And if that's the case, we've got the wrong God in our heads. Because the God who really exists, the God who we're called to worship, who we belong to, whose child we are, is above all, who is supreme, who utterly deserves our worship. There is no praise too great for him. There is no sacrifice too costly. He deserves it all. He is utterly worthy. And that's why we are called to worship him. That's why David in this prayer says that he wants his glory to be over all the earth, no matter how that is done. The key question then for us as we, as we start to finish, to what extent do I consistently respond to God in dependent prayer and wholehearted worship? If I can just leave you with a thought that I've, I've found so helpful this week. In a book on, on prayer, a gentleman writes this, uh, Paul Miller. He says, oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they focus on praying, not on God. Today, I've, I've, I haven't talked as much about prayer almost as I've talked about God, but there's a reason for that. And I love the way... He describes it. He says, in prayer, focusing on the conversation, focusing on prayer when we pray, is like trying to drive while looking at the windshield instead of through it. Do you get what he's saying? Imagine trying to drive your car. You get in and you focus on the windscreen itself rather than looking through it and driving down the road. Just think that's a great picture. And we can get so caught up in prayer and are we using the right words and, and saying the right thing when, when really prayer is just something to look through, to access God through. And what I find fascinating 
about David, who, whose prayers are held up so often as examples, who, who just, so many of the Psalms are of David, is that when God describes David, he never describes David as a man of prayer. He describes David as a man after my own heart, a man after God's own heart. How does David get to feel so secure that he offers such wholehearted worship and, and such wholehearted dependency in his prayers? Because he's got such an incredible picture of the real God who he belongs to. He's so aware of his identity, his security as a child of God. He's so focused on who God is that prayer starts to become easy and his faith as it's exercised just becomes incredible. I'd love us to have that same sort of prayerful dependency, that same sort of faith. It starts, though, with understanding, reminding ourselves, getting into our heads and reinforcing what God is like. Next time you get in the car, which most of us do every day, can I just encourage you, just remind yourself of that windscreen, that prayer is, is not about focusing on, on the prayer itself, not about focusing on the windscreen. Look through it and remind yourself about the God who is the object of your faith. I'm going to pray now, and um, habit I often get into, particularly at home, pre-coffee, wake up in the morning, and I sit down, I pray, and I'm straight into it. Something I find really helpful is just to keep my mouth shut for about for a few seconds, and even before I say anything, just to remember, just to remind myself what God is like. And another thing is, just for me, I don't want to get too spurry and too weird, but uh, one of the amazing examples in my life was a guy called Neville Taylor. Uh, some of you with grey hair like me may remember Neville Taylor, an incredible missionary. But whenever he, he preached and he got to the end and he prayed, and he always got down on his knees, and I've, you've never seen me do this before, but I'd just love to do that, not trying to be spurry or anything. But just for me personally, when I'm at home, that's what I do. Sometimes I'm on my face because for me it just reminds me, Steve, you are really small and your God is really awesome. So I'm just going to kneel. You guys don't have to. Um, but I'm just, I am going to be silent for a few seconds before we start. Don't weird out. The microphone hasn't broken or anything. I am going to pray. But yeah, let's stop and pray together. Almighty and beautiful Father, uh, we just love belonging to you. I love reading David's heartfelt prayer, his amazing worship, his words that just describe you so incredibly. Uh, and I just, I'd love to have more of that understanding in my head so that I would pray more dependently like he did, so that I'd worship you just with my heart, uh, just more genuinely with my lips and with my life like David did, no matter what I face. And so I just pray for us as a church family as we seek to become more like you, seek to become more like your son, our Lord Jesus, the most powerful, beautiful person who's ever walked this earth. Father, help us in that. We are feeble and fickle and we are so small, but you are so awesome and so beautiful. So would you please help us to do that, help us to become more and more men and women and children of dependent prayer, loving, great prayer, 
and wholehearted worship as well, because that's what you deserve from us. Thank you, almighty and beautiful Father.